Please open your Bibles to Matthew 25, verse 14. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I'd imagine that everyone in here has had a good teacher before. Uh, you look back on your life, and no doubt there are probably at least one or two teachers who had a significant impact on shaping the direction of your life beyond all the others. Or if they didn't actually change you as a human being, at the very least, you learned under them. You've all had those teachers before, right? The ones who can take a very difficult subject for you and and make it accessible. There's a difference, isn't there, between someone who simply knows a subject very well and a teacher. An expert may be able to skillfully apply a particular set of knowledge to a very difficult situation, but what separates a mere expert from a teacher, is that teachers are able to actually transfer the wisdom and knowledge that they own to their students and shape their lives through that information. A mere expert very often cannot. They know how to use the information, but they don't know how to impart it to someone else. There are a lot of ingredients that go into the making of a good teacher. There is, of course, knowledge of the subject. That's the most basic prerequisite of an excellent teacher. They have to know what they're talking about. You simply cannot teach what you do not know. A good teacher must also be a good communicator. You've probably all been around people who who clearly know what they're talking about. It's evident by the type of work that they produce. But then when they try to explain to you what they're doing or what they know, you just can't track with what they're saying. You get lost. It doesn't make sense. It's not as if the knowledge isn't there. It's just trapped in their head because they don't know how to adequately communicate it to someone else. Such people are obviously not very good teachers. A good teacher is able to express their ideas in ways that are easily understood by their pupils. This is an absolutely vital foundation of good teaching. The ability to communicate ideas clearly. People simply cannot learn concepts that they do not understand. Passion for the subject is another vital ingredient in the making of a good teacher. It's not enough to communicate a subject efficiently. One must also grab the attention of the hearers long enough that they can actually download what the teacher has to say doesn't matter how well a teacher communicates a subject, if the audience doesn't think it's worth their time to know the information, they'll ignore it. Again, we've all sat under dry, boring teachers. Some of them are very smart, some of them very logical and and clear in their communication, but at the same time, so boring that you struggle just to pay attention to what they have to say. A passionate teacher will very often captivate his or her students just with their passion alone. Their interest in the subject is infectious. Their enthusiasm by itself can be enough to convince the students that what they're saying must be worth listening to. But not only that, a passionate teacher very often also understands why their subject is important. That's why they're passionate. They can see how dramatically their topic affects our lives. And so because of that, they're also often very good at applying a subject. They can see the everyday impact of their field, and when they communicate that to their students in such a way that they can see the importance of the topic, they're hooked, their attention is fixed, and they're soaking up everything that the teacher has to offer. A good teacher also cares for their students. In other words, they're not just satisfied to stand up in front of a group of people and drone on about something they're interested in. No, they want it to have an impact on the lives of their students. They want to see lives changed by the information that they share. And this leads them to chase their students down 
in an effort to see if they understand what's being taught. As they teach, they're constantly gauging their audience, watching for things, even something like facial expression or eye contact, to monitor how their students are responding to a subject. They'll engage the students and check for comprehension by asking questions that provide direct feedback as to whether or not their students are adequately assimilating the information that they're teaching. If a student seems distant, they'll even stop them after the lesson and engage them in conversation in an effort to better understand why there might be a disconnect. Point is, their passion for the subject drives them to see it applied in the lives of their students. And so they don't just lecture, they engage, they pursue, they chase down. I got to witness many of these characteristics on full display when I worked as a vice principal at Grace Community School during seminary. I was hired to teach Bible and to function as the de facto administrator and disciplinarian of the junior high. I didn't have any formal training in education when I was hired. All I had was some knowledge of my subject and a passion to see it applied in the lives of my students. And so I watched the teachers around me, many of whom were absolutely superb educators, and I asked myself, what makes them excel? How do they manage to teach their students so effectively? As I observed, I learned that there is at least one other ingredient that makes a good teacher... And that's clear expectations. Whether it's in the realm of classroom management or homework or final exams, students simply will not thrive if they do not know what's expected of them. A good teacher not only communicates their material well, but they clearly communicate as well what the students need to learn and even how they're going to learn it. I learned this lesson the hard way, by the way, after the vast majority of my students failed my first exam. Of all the information that we had covered, I simply had not done an adequate job of explaining to them what they needed to know, what I wanted them to pay attention to. Again, you can understand that, right? Just as we've all had good teachers who did all these things well, we've also had bad teachers who did not. And you can probably, re- you can probably remember the one teacher who assigned reading, for instance, without ever referencing it in class who then pulled all their test questions from the reading when the time for the exam rolled around, right? Or you had that teacher who tells you that it's a comprehensive final, and so you kill yourself studying all the material that you learned during the quarter or the semester, only to find out that once you get to the exam, 90% of the questions come from the most recent unit, only 10% from the earlier chapters. It's incredibly frustrating to sit under one of those teachers, is it not? How are you supposed to learn the things they want you to learn if they didn't tell you what they expect of you, right? Again, this is a critical element to good teaching. A good teacher establishes clear expectations. Well, with that in mind, it should probably come as no shock for me to tell you that Jesus is a good teacher. And what this means, among other things, is that he is faithful to communicate clear expectations to his disciples. That's what we see on display in our passage for this week, which once again is Matthew 25, 14 to 30. The setting, of course, is the Olive Discourse. And the question that the disciples have on their mind is, how do we get ready for your return? 
You'll remember, of course, that this question is prompted by Jesus' prediction of the, at the beginning of Matthew 24 of the temple's destruction. The disciples connect that prediction with another prediction in Daniel 9, which said that after the temple's destruction, there would come a final seven-year period of trial that would conclude in the coming of the Messianic kingdom in the end of the age. They hear Jesus' prediction, and their minds immediately jump ahead to this final period of trial, which is known as the Great Tribulation. And so they ask Jesus, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In short, they want Jesus to tell them first when the tribulation will begin. That's the point of the first question. When will these things be? And then second, they want to know how, when it will end. And how they can know that the end is coming. That's the point of the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's the question that the disciples ask in response to Jesus' prediction of the temple's destruction. And it would appear from Jesus' response that the motivation driving these two questions is a concern for readiness. The disciples are asking these questions because they want to be prepared, both for the tribulation, which Daniel describes as an unprecedented time of suffering, and for Jesus' return at the end, which they know will culminate in the destruction of the wicked. For all the details and the information that Jesus shares about the tribulation, here in Matthew 24 and 25, that seems to be the point. He's explaining to his disciples how they should prepare for the end of the age. Up to this point, Jesus has provided two answers to the disciples' questions. First, he's told them that in relation to the sign of his coming and the end of the age, there are many signs that will predict the end. These include a great apostasy, the abomination of desolation, the false Christs and false prophets. He says that just like a fig tree shows its leaves when summer is near, so also the appearance of these signs will tell the disciples that he is near as well. But with respect to when these things will be, that is with respect to the beginning of the day of the Lord, no one knows the day or the hour. That day will happen suddenly and without warning. In other words, there's no way to know when it will occur in advance. It's a a total surprise. And the reason why this second answer matters is because Jesus says that at that time, he doesn't say specifically when, he just says at that time, somewhere with reference to the day of the Lord, there's going to be this event where one is suddenly taken and the other left. I've explained that that appears to be a reference to the rapture. The language that Jesus uses there with reference to that event, the the suddenness of it, in contrast to all the signs that will precede his final return in judgment, it, it all points to the event that we know today as the rapture. Jesus is telling his disciples that before he returns in judgment, he is going to come and collect his saints from the final and ultimate expression of his wrath at the very end. The reason why this matters is because if the disciples want to know about how to be ready for the end, then they have to know about this event. It's like they asked Jesus for the date of the final exam so they could put that down on their calendars and begin to prepare accordingly. What they don't realize is that there's going to be a kind of pop quiz that will occur before the final, and if someone passes that test, then they're exempted from the final. That quiz could occur at any point during the semester. It could take place in week two or four or eight. From their perspective, it will be administered entirely at random. So if the question is about how to prepare for the end, then they have to take that event into account. Last week, Jesus explained the implications of the unexpectedness of this event in the form of two parables. 
First, in the parable of the faithful and wicked servants, he explained that because the rapture will be unexpected, then the disciples must watch for it to to occur in the near term. But then in the parable of the ten virgins, he also explained that because the rapture will be unexpected, they should also prepare for it to be as if it were a long time coming. Overall, the idea is that they must adopt a pop quiz mentality to the event. They can't slack off with the expectation that they don't have to start preparing until the very end of the semester because there's a sense in which they don't know when the semester is going to end. It could happen as early as tomorrow. Nevertheless, at the same time, if there's a long delay, if the semester draws out longer than they expected, that shouldn't cause them to give up hope that the end of the semester is going to come. The idea is that both, both the expectation of a far return and the expectation of a near return can cause the disciple to be misled and take up inadequate preparations for that event. They must remain in constant vigil because the day of the Lord and with it the rapture can occur at any moment. Now, if a teacher told you that concept on the first day of class, you might get a little frustrated. But I would imagine that you could accept it so long as they at least told you what to study for and how they're going to grade, right? Like if they were to tell you, okay, we don't really know when it's going to happen. I'm going to test you. I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm not going to tell you. You get frustrated by that. But at least if they told you what to study and how to prepare for it, you could accept it, right? I mean, it's one thing to have to be ready for a pop quiz. It's, it's, it's quite another if you don't even know the material that the teacher is going to be testing you on during the quiz, Correct? To just simply be ready without knowing what you are to be ready for, that's an impossible task. At the very least, Jesus has to give some idea of what's going to be on that quiz, right? Well, that's what Jesus gives us in today's passage. Again, he's a good teacher. And so he knows the value of communicating clear expectations to his students. And that's what he does here. He follows up his announcement on the unexpected nature of the rapture with instructions concerning how to prepare for that event. He explains, in a sense, what will be on the exam, how his students will be graded. And not only that, but as with last week, I think he also gives instructions about how to prepare. Again, that's been the theme for a couple of weeks now. The the disciples need to watch. They need to be ready for the rapture. Here, Jesus not only tells them what to be ready for, but he also hints at the kind of preparations that will make a person ready for that event. This instruction comes in the form of what I will call three guidelines. These three guidelines inform the disciples how they are to prepare for this sudden and unexpected event. Let's go ahead now and read the passage, and then we're going to explore... Just the first of these three guidelines today. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Jesus follows up the parable of the faithful and wicked servants and the parable of the ten virgins with this, the parable of the talents. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, uh, he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I, here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So how does one prepare for the rapture? Once again, Jesus explains his expectations in the form of three guidelines. We're going to look at just one of these guidelines today, and then we'll come back and look at the other two next week. The first guideline is this. Number one, admission will be determined by faithfulness, not results. Admission will be be determined by faithfulness, not results. Students who graduate high school and apply to a university often have to meet certain criteria before they can be admitted. Such criteria often include a particular grade point average plus a minimized standardized, a, minimized, a minimal standardized test score. Sometimes students are even evaluated based on their involvement in extracurricular activities. The, the more prestigious the university, of course, the more rigorous the admission standards. Well, this is, in a sense, what we have in this parable. It is Jesus' explanation of the admission criteria for the kingdom of heaven. You can think of this guideline kind of like the grading portion of Jesus' instructions. If the disciples want to know, in a sense, what will be on the exam, what they will be held accountable for, in order to gain admission into the kingdom, this is the answer that Jesus provides. He's not going to hold them accountable for their doctrinal knowledge or even their evangelistic results. Rather, he's going to hold them accountable for their faithfulness. That's how he'll grade them. Not so much by what they produced, as much as by whether or not they were faithful to follow his instruction and discharge their responsibilities. We discover this guideline based on the way the master rewards the servants, or more literally slaves in this parable. The story begins with the master going on a journey. Now, Jesus doesn't say here what this journey is for. However, in Luke 19, Jesus tells a very similar parable, just days earlier as he neared Jerusalem. And in that parable, the master goes off into a far country in order to receive the legal authority of a kingdom and then to return. Again, that's not the exact same parable, but it's a very, very similar parable. And with it being so recently told, the parable of Luke 19 would surely have been in the mind of Jesus' disciples when he told this one. And so I think this gives us an idea of what Jesus is describing over here in Matthew 25. Jesus, once again, is the master 
And the journey is a reference to the gap in time that will take place after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and before His return. The slaves, once again, are the disciples. Since the master in this story is going to be uh, away, he entrusts his property to the care of his slaves while he's gone. His property, by the way, is anything but a modest sum. He distributes a total of eight talents to the three slaves. A talent is a monetary measurement graded by weight. Uh, You could pay someone at this time with a talent of silver or a talent of gold. It was supposed to be the equivalent of what a Roman soldier could carry on their back. This puts modern estimates of the ancient talent as somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. For some perspective, if you were to measure out 100 pounds of gold today and sell it at the going rate of around $1,300 an ounce, then that would make a single talent of gold worth around $2 million today. Of course, we can't exactly estimate the worth of these talents today by what they would fetch Uh, on the market then. Gold and silver prices have risen and fallen since then. However, if you happen to have an ESV, you'll see that according to the notation in verse 15, a single talent at this time was estimated to be the equivalent of about 20 years' wages. So that should give you some estimate, not only as to the worth of the master, but also as to the great responsibility he's entrusting to these slaves. It may seem odd that he would grant such a significant authority to a slave, but you have to understand that slavery in the Roman Empire didn't function in the way that it functioned in our own nation's history. When we think of slavery, we think of poorly fed and poorly educated manual laborers. Slavery didn't necessarily work that way in the Roman Empire. Not only was slavery a practice that was spread across all ethnic barriers, but it was something that people sometimes entered into willingly as a matter of economic necessity. They would essentially sell their freedom for economic security. In other words, while slaves were viewed as property, they weren't necessarily seen as lesser human beings. They were rather seen as a kind of permanent laborer to be used according to the master's wishes. The way this worked out practically is that slaves were very often educated and trained in a particular skill. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for a slave to be more educated even than the master who owned them. And it's with this fact in mind that we not only see why the master would entrust such authority to his slaves, but also why the passage notes that he did so according to each one's ability. So the master is smart. He's wise. He realizes that when it comes to investment, it's foolish to put all his eggs in one basket. He needs to diversify his portfolio to protect against any loss. This is why he doesn't simply give all his money to one slave. But at the same time, he still recognizes that the slaves have a different level of competence. They each have abilities that differ from one another, and he distributes his money accordingly. He apparently gives the largest sum of money to the most talented of the three slaves. He gives a little bit less than half of that to the one after him. And then finally, to the least talented of the slaves, he gives just a single talent. Again, that's nothing to scoff at. Even still, it demonstrates some reflection of the master's estimate of that slave's ability. In verse 19, the master returns and he meets to settle his accounts with his slaves. He soon discovers that both the first and the second slave have doubled his investments, while the third slave did not. Instead, fearful of his master, he hid his talent and simply returned it. To be sure, he didn't lose the money his master gave him, but he didn't do anything with it either. The master is returned his, his talent exactly as he left it. 
The master then enters into judgment with his slaves. The two slaves that doubled their investment are rewarded. And the third slave is punished. We can tell from the third slave's punishment that this is a description of eternal rewards, even eternal destination. In verse 30, it said that the slave, that that third slave is cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one of Jesus' stock descriptions of hell. So once again, it's apparent who the actors in this parable are. The first two slaves are believers. They receive eternal reward in heaven. The third slave is an unbeliever. And he receives eternal punishment in hell. Now, Jesus doesn't delve into the full picture of reward here, but we've already seen in this gospel that in one sense, in one sense, all believers receive the same reward. That was illustrated in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. When the laborers came and and, and worked early in the day, whether they came and worked early in the day, or whether they didn't begin until the very last hour in that parable, they all received the same wage. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. All Christians receive the same eternal life. They all live in the same realm, experiencing the same blessings of God. In other words, there's no first class versus coach in the kingdom of heaven. All receive the same basic reward in that sense. However, this is not to say that believers will all receive the exact same reward. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus speaks of the 12 disciples sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and the new world. That seems to be a very specific reward given to the disciples alone. Shortly after that, James and John asked Jesus via their mother to be granted the place of preeminence by being awarded the seats on Jesus' right and left. Jesus rebukes them for their request, and in his rebuke, he indicates that those seats will be awarded to someone even though he doesn't specify who. So there's no correction about the idea that some will have a better reward than others. He really just corrects them for wanting to hoard the better place for themselves. Later on, Paul would speak in 1 Corinthians 3 of each man's work being tested on the day of judgment and of some work enduring and of other work being burned up and of each man receiving a reward according to the work that survives. So when we're thinking of reward, we really have to think of it in two senses. There's the basic reward that all believers will receive on account of their faith in Christ, and then there is an added reward that Christ will distribute according to a believer's work in the flesh. In these two senses, it's in, it's in these two senses that Paul refers to when he says in 1 Corinthians 3:15, "If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss." though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The idea is that their disobedience cannot cause them to forfeit the salvation that they've received in Christ. But it can cause them to forfeit this additional reward, which, by the way, it seems Jesus will award in heaven after the rapture. To think of it once again in terms of a classroom examination, you have first the pass-fail barrier. Typically, you have to score at least a D or above in order to pass a class and be allowed to move on. However, even beyond passing, a student can excel and be distinguished from the rest of their class by earning higher or lower grades, perhaps a B or even an A. 
We know, of course, that the only way to pass God's test is based on the merit of Christ alone. In fact, it's probably accurate to say that we don't just pass the test based on Christ's merit. We actually all earn A's for the whole course. 100% perfect scores. Because that's actually what God requires to pass the course. Not just a few tests with a score you know, somewhere in the 60% or 75% or even 90% range. No, He requires a 100% score. Absolute perfection all the way through. You don't do that, you can't graduate. And none of us can achieve that. It's awarded through Christ's merit alone. He alone has scored 100%. And so the only way we can pass is if His grades are transferred to us, which of course comes by grace through faith alone. However, that being said, it is possible in a sense to earn extra credit, if you want to call it that, by what we do. Our score is already perfect based on Christ's merit, but by His grace, God will yet award us based on what we do in this life after our salvation. Again, we don't deserve that. It's extra credit. It's grace. But you see some distinction in heaven based on that. What's notable about this parable is that Jesus seems to be dealing only with the criteria that have to do with the pass-fail portion of the exam. In other words, we're not dealing with extra credit here. We're not dealing, for instance, with the kind of above and beyond excellence that might cause one student to be distinguished from another with a scholarship. We're dealing with the basic admission requirements. I actually didn't realize that about this parable until I started studying it. But Jesus is not dealing with the secondary level of rewards here. He's dealing with the criteria that he will use to determine who will enter into heaven and who will not. He's dealing with readiness at that level. What, what criteria a disciple must pass in order to enter into heaven. And the reason we know that is not only, not only because of the reference to hell with the third slave, which I mentioned just a moment ago, but also because in this parable, both the first and the second slave receive the same reward. You look at verse 21. And the master tells the first slave, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then you look at verse 23, and the master tells the second slave the exact same thing. And the reason that's notable is because, like I said just a few moments ago, Jesus actually tells a very similar parable just a few days earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And not only is there no reference to hell with the third slave in that parable, the judgment instead falls on enemies outside the nobleman's kingdom when he returns. But in that parable, there actually is a distinction made between the first and the second slave. In that parable, all the slaves actually receive the same amount, a single mina, as opposed to the various talents here, a mina being the equivalent to about three months' wages. And the first slave who turns that single mina into ten, is set in authority over ten cities. The second slave, who turns his mina into five, is set in authority over five cities. Here's the, here there's, there's still a reference to a, a distribution of authority based on the slave's faithfulness, but there's no specific reference to how much authority each slave receives. It's presented as if it's more or less the same. 
Also notable is the fact that in this parable, the master caps his praise by saying, enter into the joy of your master. That appears to be part of even the best part of the reward in this parable. The slaves get to enter into the master's joy. There's no such reference to that in the parable of the minus in Luke 19. In other words, Jesus isn't repeating himself to to the disciples just a few days apart with those two parables. He's actually using the same basic principle described with two similar parables in two different settings to describe two different concepts. The principle, both here and in Luke 19, is the statement you see in verse 29, where Jesus says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That statement occurs in both parables. The only difference is that Jesus illustrates that principle with the parable of the ten minus in order to make a point about how distinction will be made among believers in heaven in Luke 19. Here he illustrates the same principle with the parable of the talents in order to make a point about the distinction that will be made between the believer and the unbeliever at the point of the rapture. This is important. What Jesus is doing in this parable is making a distinction between between true disciples and false ones. To set it in the context of the rapture, he's making a distinction between the one who will be taken and the one who will be left. That's the context. The disciples want to know how to be ready. Jesus is exhorting them to be ready. Now he defines what ready is in light of his return. The one who is ready will look like the first two slaves. The one who is not ready will look like the third slave. By the way, notice that that slave will receive the same treatment as the wicked servant at the end of chapter 24 and the five foolish virgins earlier here in chapter 25. Again, this is the context. Jesus is dealing with the criteria by which he'll distinguish the wicked slave from the faithful one, the foolish virgin from the wise one. And the reason he's doing this, the reason even why Matthew includes this parable in his gospel, and and by the way, he's the only one to do that. The reason why Jesus brings this up and the reason why Matthew includes this parable in his gospel is in order to distinguish between true disciples and false ones. And it would seem that this is done partly for self-examination. Again, the disciples want to know how to be prepared. Jesus is telling them. Matthew is passing this information along. And the reason it would seem is so that the reader can reflect and determine if they're prepared. If they're ready for the sudden and seemingly random event by which Jesus returns to collect his people. Well, the first guideline that we can see in this criteria is that admission will be determined by faithfulness, not results. By faithfulness, not results. And this is a comfort, by the way. You look around you and you can see that there are Christians who are more gifted than you are. Can't you? You can see that, right? There are Christians who are able to produce better results than you can. Aren't there? If admission into heaven was determined in the same way that a university determined admission, that might make you start to sweat it. 
You'd start to ask yourself, am I good enough? Have I done enough? When it's all said and done, will God be pleased enough with my work that he'll let me in? But here's the good news. Not only does the master in this parable realize that some of his slaves have greater abilities than others, and then adjust the talents that's entrusted to them accordingly. But at the end of the day, he says both to the one who produced the five and to the one who produced the two, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. They both hear the same praise. They both get the same reward. What matters to the master is not the amount that they produced with what he gave them. Only that they were faithful to do something with it. It's only the third slave who does absolutely nothing with the master's talent who is cast into the outer darkness. So you see, if you want to know, am I ready for the master's return? You don't ask that question by asking, have I done enough? It's never about enough. It's never about enough when it comes to admission to the kingdom. Not anymore, at least. And that's because of what I said earlier about the way that God grades. In order to enter the kingdom, God demands absolute perfection. He demands a perfect score. And while that would normally be a cause for despair, it isn't any longer because Jesus took the test for us and he aced it. He got the perfect score. And that perfect score is applied to everyone who believes equally, whether that be the slave who turns five talents into five more or the one who produces two out of two. They each have a perfect score because each rests on the merit of Christ by faith. And just to be clear, it doesn't matter if that's a small faith or a big faith, a weak faith or a strong faith. It's the mere presence of faith that matters in any size, in any quantity, because we do not enter the kingdom based on the merit of our faith, but on the merit of its object. So it's no longer about whether or not we've done enough. So long as we have faith in Christ in any measure, then we have what we need to meet God's admission requirements. So it's not about results, whether we produce two talents or five. It's about the basic response. Do we have faith? So long as the answer to that question is yes, then both the five-talent slave and the two-talent slave enter into the kingdom because they enter on the basis of the same merit, the righteousness of Christ. Again, that's a comfort. We do not have to look at our works for assurance that God will rescue us from His wrath during the last day. We need only to look at the perfect merit of Christ and know, I am accepted. It is enough. So if you're here this morning and you believe in the gospel, take comfort from this passage and rest in your salvation. You know, the question that comes up at this point is, but have I believed? Or at least that should be the question that comes up at this point. Because that's the question that we're going to see Jesus address in part two of this parable next week. After all, there's no doubt about the sufficiency of the sacrifice, right? It's obvious that Christ's righteousness alone is completely sufficient to gain a person access to the kingdom of heaven. But that's only so long as they've believed, isn't it? It's not, it's not applied to everyone. It's only applied to those who believe. And as I noted at the conclusion of our message last week, those who believe will manifest 
that faith through certain expressions in their life. And that's why Jesus can speak of the wicked slave and the five foolish virgins not getting into the kingdom based on their preparedness when he arrives. He's not making their salvation conditional upon their obedience. He's just noting that faith inevitably produces fruit, a particular kind of fruit that those individuals are lacking. And so inevitably, a question that should come up when it comes to a passage such as this is, have I believed? Who am I? Am I the faithful servant or the wicked one? Am I one of the five wise virgins or am I one of the foolish ones? Am I the first, one of the first or second slaves in today's parable or am I the third one? Again, that's a legitimate question to ask at this point. In fact, I'd say that's why these passages have been written. Passages have been written. They've been written to, for you to reflect on that question and so prepare yourself for the king's arrival. The problem is that very often, very often, the way that we determine whether or not we have believed is by the amount of our works or the extent of our obedience. And very often the way we do this is by comparing ourselves to other people. We say, am I faithful? Do I respond to Jesus? And then we answer by measuring ourselves against the faithfulness of others. You know, I'm more obedient than that unbeliever. I'm less obedient than that saint, and so on. Listen, that's not the way to go about this. The way you determine whether or not you believe is not by the amount of obedience in your life. In fact, I think we'll see next week that while Jesus does draw this question back to a disciple's obedience, He points rather to the quality of a slave's obedience as a measure of their faithfulness rather than the quantity. The issue is not about the amount of obedience because our obedience earns us absolutely zero merit before God. The only way we will stand before God is based on the righteousness of Christ. And that is awarded to us by faith, not by what we do. And so you don't respond to this passage by asking yourself, have I done enough? You may ask yourself, do I believe? That's a legitimate question. Although I think an entirely separate one from whether or not you've done enough. And then assuming that you do believe, you rest on the merit of Christ and thank God that the two-talent slave and the five-talent slave are both told. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And of the many truths that this table symbolizes, this one is central. That Christ has paid the full full penalty of your sin. And that you can now enter boldly into the presence of God based on His merit alone. Mark that. This symbolizes not that he might pay, not that he will pay, but that he has already paid the penalty for your sin. In other words, when you hold the bread and the cup in your hands this morning, the thought that should be going through your head is, I am accepted by the Father. I am now clean in his sight. Sinner that I am, he loves me and he approves me. And when Jesus returns, He'll bring me into His house. It doesn't matter what sins you may have performed this week, and believers, they do still sin. But so long as your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, and it's a real, genuine faith, then you are already accepted by the Father based on what Christ has done for you. The bread and the cup 
are meant to serve as a tangible expression of that fact, that the price of your redemption has already been paid in full, and so your acceptance before God is a present tense reality, regardless of your sin. If you want to think of it this way, your acceptance letter is already in your hand. It's symbolized in the elements this morning. So rest and delight in the fact that your Savior may come back soon and proclaim to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Let's pray.